facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome to the program. It is March the 23rd, 2023. 3-23-23. So good to be talking to you on the program. I'm your host, Kale Clark. I'll be with you for the next hour. And you can call in one 888-914-9149, to talk to me for free. We've got a lot to cover today, and I can't wait to get into it. We're going to talk about the number one killer of relationships, and I'm talking about all kinds of relationships. It kills marriages, it poisons business relationships and friendships alike, and you've got to avoid it. We'll tell you how later in the show. But first of all, I would be remiss if I didn't mention to you that today is Father Rocky's birthday. So uh, we'll sing a little bit. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Father Rocky. Happy birthday to you and many more. He's probably listening somewhere as he's driving around. I know he's going to be up later with the family rosary across America, but we do uh, love you very much, Father, and I want all of our listeners to pray for Father today, as I know you always do. And of course, Father, being a priest, he's very, very concerned about the Eucharist, and today being, of course, Thursday, it's the day that Jesus instituted the Eucharist on Holy Thursday, I want to encourage everybody, if you haven't done so already, to go to RelevantRadio.com, go to the app, and figure out how you can sign up. It's very easy. You just have to click on the link, click on the banner, and sign up for Lenten Lessons on the Mass, if you haven't yet, because it's a great way to get yourself into a Eucharistic state of mind, and it's a great thing to do every Lent, focus on the Mass, the redemption that Jesus has won for us on the cross on Good Friday, and of course, the miracle of the Eucharist on Holy Thursday, the day before. And as we get closer to Holy Week, we'll, we'll talk much more about that. But Thursday is always a good day to discuss the Eucharist. And I want to talk about a piece that I saw, which was really intriguing about the Eucharist. It was really about Eucharistic meltdown. What is a Eucharistic meltdown? We've kind of been living through this over the past few decades in the Church. And you know that the, uh, the United States bishops are instituting a Eucharistic revival. And we at Relevant Radio, we are always in union with the bishops, and they want a Eucharistic revival, and so do I, and so do you. But we haven't exactly been, and the reason why we, we need this Eucharistic revival is because we've been dealing with a Eucharistic meltdown. Father Peter Stravinskis wrote an essay for the Catholic World Report, and he talked about this, what he calls Eucharistic meltdown. And he kind of starts it off with a with kind of a, an interesting story. It's kind of a wild story. He said that when he was a young priest, he was an administrator, I guess a chaplain of a high school. But believe it, much to his chagrin, when he started working there, he realized that the school had never once, never once offered any days of retreat or recollection for its students in the entire history of the school. He just couldn't believe it. So he said, I'm going to fix this. And within a month of the opening of the school year, he had set up an afternoon of recollection for the freshman class. And he kind of ended it off with a holy hour. And during Eucharistic benediction, he actually, there were a couple servers who were helping him, and they were kind of behind him. And he thought he heard them crying. He thought he heard them trying to hold back their tears. 
And so in the sacristy, you tried to ask them about it. And he said, were you, were you guys crying? And they're like, at first they tried to be all macho. They're like, no, no, Father, of course not. We were, we were, we were crying. No way, no way. But they eventually admitted it. They eventually admitted it. And they said, yeah, we were crying. And uh, one of them said, Father, I have never felt so close to Jesus in my entire life. And it, he had never, ever even seen exposition of the Blessed Sacrament or, or, or experienced Eucharistic benediction. And, and I, I just, I love this because, I especially love it during benediction, and maybe you've seen this, and this isn't part of it, but I always think it's interesting that when, when the priest raises the monstrance uh, with our Lord exposed, very often he'll, intentionally or not, he'll kind of cover his face so all you can see is Jesus in the Eucharist. And, and I kind of think there's a great lesson there, that we all kind of have to, as St. Jose Maria said, we all have to hide and disappear so that Jesus can, can really shine. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of what we're going to talk about tomorrow, actually, on the Faith Explained programs. We're going through the book of Exodus, really famous incident in the life of Moses. Maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, kind of give you a sneak preview, time permitting, but the shining face of Moses. He's spending time with God on the mountain, when he comes down, the people are amazed because his face is shining with the glory of God. It's not it, Moses' personality is kind of being subsumed here. And what's important is that, that God's glory is shining forth. And so Father Peter Stravinskis says that we've had a Eucharistic meltdown, as he puts it, over the past several decades. And a lot of it was because of liturgical changes and problems which were never envisioned by the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. And also, by the way, tomorrow on The Faith Explained, I'm going to answer a question about where did the Catechism of the Catholic Church come from? How did it come to be the current Catechism? It's over 30 years old now. Can you believe that? It came out in 1992. Where did it come from? Well, really, Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul the Great, he said, I want this to be a definitive take on Vatican II in so many ways. But he knew, he knew there was a lot of confusion after the council, and, and a lot of it, that was liturgical confusion. And so, Father Peter Stravinskis says that after the council, he saw a slide into Eucharistic irreverence and finally into Eucharistic meltdown. And he was not really happy about this, because really what we all should have is Eucharistic amazement. That's what JP2 wanted for us. So in 1992, and that was the same year the Catechism came out, Father Stravinskis says that he enlisted the services of the famous George Gallup, who conducts all the Gallup polls, and he tried to answer this question. What do people really think? What do Catholics really think about the Eucharist? And so the, the results were pretty bad, and you might remember this poll. Only 30 percent of the respondents actually got the question right when it comes to the Eucharist. When receiving Holy Communion, you are really receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. So everybody, only 30% got it right. Everybody else, 70%, had varying responses. They thought it was either, they were either exhibiting Protestant beliefs or whatever. I mean, just all kinds of, of crazy things. 29% thought that they were just receiving bread and wine, symbolizing Jesus or his spirit or his teaching. 24% uh, thought, well, yeah, it's the body and blood of Christ, but it becomes the body and blood of Christ because of 
my personal belief. In other words, I'm making it happen. It has nothing to do with the priest in the line of apostolic succession, the valid sacrament, nothing to do. It's it's me making it happen. Anyways, a lot of and eight percent said they don't know. I, I have no idea. None of the above. Well, this poll was repeated a couple years later in 1994 by the New York Times. It was very similar, similar results. And then in 2020, just uh, about three years ago, the Pew Research Forum did another poll on this. Again, the results were almost exactly the same. So the upshot of all of this is that over a 30-year period, we still have this issue where less than one-third of Catholics who go to Holy Mass on a regular basis actually are correct and understand the, the doctrinal teaching of the Church on the Eucharist. So not much has changed in 30 years, and that's, that's a problem, and this is why we need a Eucharistic revival. That's why the bishops of the United States put out this pastoral letter about this and called for a revival. So how can we get back on track? How can we have this Eucharistic revival and get out of this mess that we're in? Well, he quotes St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. And of course, what, what a great convert to the Catholic faith, one of the greatest converts of all time. And in 1836, he said these words. This is 1836. Quote, to believe and not to revere, to worship familiarly and at one's ease is an anomaly and a prodigy unknown even to false religions. To say nothing of the true religion, worship, forms of worship, such as bowing the knee, taking off the shoes, keeping silence, a prescribed way of dress, and the like, are considered as necessary for a due approach to God, end of quote. So what he's really talking about there is proper reverence in the presence of the holy. And we've kind of kind of lost that. And I'm not saying we need to take off our shoes as if we're on holy ground. That I mean, that's probably not, not a good idea for a lot of reasons. But you get the point. We're not people aren't taking it as seriously as, as they ought to be. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. And then here, here's another quote that Stravinskis gives from Thomas Merton. And we talked about Thomas Merton on the show yesterday, Trappist monk, a convert to the Catholic faith, an American convert. And he wrote this book called The Seven-Story Mountain, which is really a spiritual autobiography. And he talked about his first Holy Communion he made when he became Catholic. This is a just a beautiful, beautiful quote. And this actually happened a few blocks from Columbia University at Corpus Christi Church, which is a poetic Corpus Christi, the Eucharist. And here's what Thomas Merton said about his first communion, obviously as an adult. He said, quote, I saw the raised host, the silence, the simplicity with which Christ once again triumphed, raised up, drawing all things to himself, drawing me to himself. I was the only one at the altar rail. So I don't know whether it was, just to interject, I don't know whether this is a private uh, communion that, that he had, but... He said, I was the only one at the altar rail. He said, heaven was entirely mine. That heaven in which sharing makes no division or diminution. But this solitariness was a kind of reminder of the singleness with which this Christ, hidden in the small host, was giving himself for me and to me and with himself the entire Godhead and Trinity a great new increase of the power and grasp of their indwelling that had begun in me only a few minutes before at the baptismal font. 
in the temple of God that I had just become, the one eternal and pure sacrifice was offered up to the God dwelling in me. The sacrifice of God to God and me sacrificed together with God. Wow, this is, this is pretty deep stuff. So he's saying basically, I was baptized, God was living within me, and then I received the Eucharist on top of that. Wow. So uh, I, just, I just love the way he, he puts this here. In the temple of God, I had just become the one eternal and pure sacrifice was offered up to the God dwelling in me, the sacrifice of God to God, and me sacrificed together with God, incorporated in his incarnation, Christ born in me, a new Bethlehem, and sacrificed in me, his new Calvary, and risen in me, offering me to the Father in himself, asking the Father, my Father and his, to receive me into his infinite and special love. End of quote. Wow, what a powerful quote from Thomas Merton. And obviously that's, that's great writing. Maybe we can't always communicate quite so poignantly. But I think we all remember very clearly, or at least hopefully we do, our first communion. It's, it's a, a watershed moment in life, and, and for most of us it happens when we're, when we're children, and we, we may not be able to... We can explain it. Do we, do we fully understand it? Well, nobody really fully understands it in, in a certain sense. We can know that it's true, but it's, it's just so deep. And in 1957, Father Stravinska says when he was a kid, he received his first communion, and he still remembers it. He said that, quote, I was kneeling at the altar rail of St. Rose's Church in Newark, New Jersey. I can still remember the exact spot where I knelt at that altar rail and how the months of study and preparation seemed as if it was nothing. In the awareness that the God who had created both me and the universe, was now coming to dwell within me in a new and wondrous manner. Having baptized into Christ's body, the church, which is likewise his bride, I was now being brought into a union even more close and more intimate than that of marriage. Through the Eucharist, Jesus and I would become one. How I trembled at the prospect for which I had waited so long, not from fear, because I was never trained to relate to God in fear, but from love and joy. The priest was only two children away from me, now one. Finally, he stood before me. It was my turn. And signing me with the sacred host, he prayed in Latin, Corpus Domini, Nostri Jesu Christi, Custodiat Animum Tuum in Vitam Eternum. Yeah, that's not bad. I'm not a Latin scholar. That's what I try. What, the, what that means, obviously, may the body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul unto life eternal. And so, Father Stravinska says when he received his first communion, he knew at that moment he was entering upon a new mode of existence. And we need to recapture that enthusiasm, that innocence, that faith which brings us to appreciate what the Eucharist is. It's Jesus Christ. And so, that is just uh, incredibly beautiful to think about. And and, and Jesus says you have to become like little children. You have to turn and become like little children. And, and recapturing the joy of our, of our first communion and just the power of that experience is something that I think we can really try to do today and try to just think about. It's a good thing to maybe pray about, that we might once again um, have that kind of enthusiasm for the Eucharist. And so in 2004, he talks about how Pope John Paul II um, really had this set up this Eucharistic year, this year dedicated to the Eucharist, and he put out his, his 
really his last encyclical, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, which is an incredible. Now, if you haven't read this, it's really, really good. It's really good. It's very readable. You can download it from the Vatican website, get it off the internet. It is, it's very easy to understand, and it's, it's very deep. It's very deep. And, and so that's a great text on the Eucharist and, and something we can really, really pray about. And here's a, here's a quote from that document. This is uh, St. John Paul II. He said, Faith demands that we approach the Eucharist fully aware that we are approaching Christ himself. And it is precisely his presence that gives all the other aspects of the Eucharist significance. The Eucharist is a mystery of presence, the perfect fulfillment of Jesus' promise to remain with us until the end of the world. And, and he talked also about how, and Stravinskis mentions this in his article, how the Pope talked about Jesus in the tabernacle as kind of like a magnetic pole. And, and just it's just it should attract like a magnet souls to to sense the beating of his heart. And and so th- this is something that we really need to think about as we think about a Eucharistic revival in the United States. I think this is a good document that we can read, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, as we think about this. And uh, it's something you can do also, and this is something that um, is mentioned in the article. If your parish is not in the habit of doing this, if, you're, if your parish priest, pastor does not do this on a regular basis, why not ask him if he'd be interested in highlighting the Solemnity of Corpus Christi, which happens this year on Sunday, June the 8th. Maybe set up an afternoon of Eucharistic adoration or, or offering benediction. If, if, if he's not willing to do a procession through the neighborhood with our Eucharistic Lord, which is always great if, they, if you can do it, but what about just setting up Eucharistic adoration? That would be a great thing. A great thing, and um, might seem like it. It's not going to make that big, not going to make that big of a dent in the, in the universe, but it really can for individual souls. And we've got to be apostles of the Eucharist, like Father Stravinsky says. We've got to be apostles of the Eucharist, and we can't let other people do. It. We can't just say, "Well, this is for someone else. This is for the bishops." We have to play our part as well, and we have to invite people to to discover the fact that Christ is really with us in the Blessed Sacrament. This is the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. I'd love to hear what you think about this. Why not give me a call right now? 888-914-9149. We'll be right back after this quick break. And also, you're going to hear from Father Rocky with another Lenten lesson on his birthday. Happy birthday, Father. Talk to you soon. Fun. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hootie, I only want to be with you. I only want to talk to you. So why not give me a call? 888-914-9149. It's Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. You can also follow me on Twitter at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And you can also email the program C-A-L-E, Kale at Relevant Radio. Dot com. Let's go to the phones right now. Let's go to Eric in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hi, Eric. Eric I've heard there? so many polls. Can you hear me? I, yeah, I can now. Yeah, you're good now. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I've heard so many polls where Catholics believe this or don't believe that. I rarely see a distinction between what a real Catholic is. Now, my point is mm-hmm. this. If they don't if they don't go to church every Sunday or try to go every Sunday, they're not a Catholic. 
And so I want to know just what the ones who go every Sunday are close enough yeah. think about the. I've never met anyone who didn't believe in the real presence, and I bet you haven't either, of a real Catholic who goes every Sunday. And that bothers me, that, you know, these polls, I think they're, ah. So what do you the, think? You think they're wrong? Yes, I think they're wrong. I think most Catholics don't go to church. They're the idiots, but I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, there you go. <laughs> Hey, well, hey, um, th- thanks, Eric, for, for the call and, and, and for sharing your thoughts on that. Yeah, these polls were uh, allegedly, according to the pollsters, th- these polls were done of Catholics who are attending Sunday Mass or who say that they are Sunday Mass attenders. So there you have it for what it's worth. And I, I don't know. I, I That's a great question. Now, now are they, they I, I would disagree with you about this. They, they are still Catholics. You, you could say that they're bad Catholics, maybe. Uh, but they are still Catholics. Um, if you're baptized and you're a Catholic, you, you are a Catholic, even if you've gone astray. Now, I know what you mean by that, of course. I know you mean that they're not functionally Catholic in any realistic sense of the word. Do they really buy into it anymore? Yeah, point to, I'm just being really super technical about this. But um, there you have it. And I, I hope that is actually the case. I hope that the numbers aren't as bad as the polls say. But but again, th- this is this is why we need a revival on catechesis, um, a Eucharistic revival. We need all of that stuff. We really, really do. So thanks for sharing your thoughts. And if you have a take on this too, you can call in 888-914-9149. But like I said off the top of the show, I I did want to share with you this. Um, It's really the number one killer of all kinds of relationships. And this is a predictor of failed marriages, well over a 90% prediction of whether or not a couple is going to have a divorce. This is something you're going to want to hear about. It kills marriages. It can kill other types of relationships as well, business relationships with your boss, with your subordinates, with your colleagues, friendships. You've got to avoid it. So what what am I talking about here? Well, uh, Matt Schnuck, uh, who does such such great um, deep dives into this stuff on Twitter, he actually worked with this guy who was a world-renowned researcher on this, a famous psychologist. And this, this one thing, this one thing, the, the most destructive pattern that he identified, and it actually predicts, let's talk about marriage here for a second, it predicts divorce with 91% accuracy. That's pretty scary accuracy. And th- this guy became so well-known that A-list celebrities, even billionaires, would go to him with their relationship problems. And so he, here's, the, here's, here's what he identified. First, let me tell you who it is. It's Dr. John Gottman. Dr. John Gottman. He's a world-renowned psychologist and researcher. And according to Matt Schnuck, he's studied relationships for over 50 years. And so he identifies certain patterns in marriages and four patterns in particular. He calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And if couples do these things, uh, they're, they're not on a good track uh, in terms of their marriage. And in fact, he was able to predict divorce with 91% accuracy by identifying these four patterns of couples were uh, addicted to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, unfortunately, Matt Schnuck doesn't tell us what the other three are, but he, here's the worst one the most corrosive of the four horsemen. And in fact, Dr. John Gottman called this sulfuric acid. 
for human connection. That's how bad it is. This is what kind of poison it can be for relationships. What is it? What's the number one predictor of divorce or a failed relationship? It's contempt. It's contempt. You're in contempt of court. Well, contempt is a killer for relationships. And this is what uh, John Gottman talks about. Well, what is it? Well, contempt is related to criticism, but with a difference, with a very crucial difference. Because when you have contempt for someone, you're assuming a position of superiority over them, moral superiority or some other kind of superiority. If you feel contempt for an individual, you actually think that you're better than them. And so if you, if you express something that's negative towards the other person, and sometimes for relationships to progress, you do have to express a negative and, and hopefully turn that into a positive. But if you express a negative towards somebody and you combine that with feeling superior to them, that's contempt. And that can drive the relationship apart, just like a wedge. And Matt Schnuck actually says that They've done like heat maps of the human body when it comes to emotion. Remember how yesterday we were talking about decision-making? We said we have to look at this holistically because uh, it's a body, mind, and soul thing when we make good decisions uh, before God. And, and so our emotions are part of how God made us. We don't want them running the show. We don't want them driving the car. We don't want them in the trunk, but they can make a good passenger. But one thing about emotions is that they can actually be mapped physiologically in the body. They've done heat maps on when people feel different emotions. What does it look like? And if you're happy, it'll look like this. If you're sad, it'll look a different way. Or if you're feeling depressed, when you feel this contempt towards another person, here's how it feels physiologically. It feels like an intense heat in your chest and in your head area. Maybe that's where they get the phrase hot-headedness. I don't know. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever had contempt for somebody and you felt that. You felt this heat in your chest and in your head area. Or maybe it was the double anchovy pizza. I don't know. Um, a little hot tamale there. But anyways, give me a call. 888-914-9149. The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. So some people actually feel this way physiologically when they have this contempt towards another person. And sometimes even their hands feel tense. Well, what, what happens if you, if you feel this happening to you or if you think this is happening to you? Well, Matt Schnuck says what you need to do is take a step back because of the fact that it is affecting your body, it's affecting your emotions. You need to exit this conversation before you say something that you're going to regret, before you do something that might irreparably damage the relationship. Exit the conversation maybe for a longer time than you think, maybe for a few hours, maybe even a day. I don't know. Let your body reset and then pick it up when you're more calm. When your amygdala is not, you know, firing on all cylinders. That's people often say things that they regret when their amygdala is triggered. That's the fight or flight response center of the brain. So how do you recognize contempt in other people? Well, here what do you think is it producer Jim, can you hear me? Let me ask you this. What what do you think is the number one sign? That, that like a, a physical thing that somebody can do to show that they're feeling contempt for you. What do you think it is? <laughs> take a guess. Just take a, take a wild guess. Middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, well, that, Hey, that would be uh, that, Just that's a even guess. more, that's, that's even more nuclear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're number one. No, that's not what it means. But, um, but no, actually they, not they recommending say, that, <laughs> not recommending that, but, but, uh, 
Dr. John Gottman's research actually says that the most common behavior associated with contempt was the eye roll. Now, somebody rolling their eyes, oh, oh, oh. That, that's the number one sign that people are, are looking at you with contempt. Or they're not really looking at you because their eyes are rolling back in their head because they're just like, oh, I'm done. All right, so that, that's, that's what it looks like very often if you've been eye-rolled by somebody, um, which has happened to me a lot. Uh, that, 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 that could be it. So is this resonating with you? Let me know, 888 Have you seen this happen in your own life or that of others, contempt, and, and how it's poisoned a relationship in the office, a marriage, or a friendship? Or here, I'll tell you what the solution, this, that's the poison. I'm going to tell you what the antidote is in just a second, but, but let's get back to contempt here. Well, that's what it looks like. Number one is the eye roll. I think number two might be what Jim said, but uh, I won't go back to that right now. Um, I'm glad we're on the radio. You know, it, Jim could be doing that. Maybe he's mad at me. I don't, I don't know. Nope. But, no, 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 he's not. He's not. But uh, here's what, if that's what contempt looks like, here's what contempt sounds like in the workplace. So your boss may, might say something. To, let's say you're, you're concerned about your workload. You're feeling stressed. Your boss might say, oh, you're overworked, are you? Well, cry me a river. I've been dealing with all kinds of important strategic deadlines and priorities. I don't have time to deal with your petty issues. That, that would be a, a sign of contempt if somebody were to talk to you like that. So you say, well, what's the, what's the antidote? What's the antidote? Well, apparently John Gottman, Dr. John Gottman, has got man for you and woman for you the antidote and here's what it is it's 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 forming a culture of appreciation so that's the antidote to contempt appreciation appreciation and so here's what you do it's it's actually pretty simple it's actually pretty easy all you have to do is remind yourself first and the other person that th that this other individual that you're dealing with and maybe you're tempted to feel contempt for them they actually do have positive qualities. So, Jim, I actually do have positive. I don't know if you, I, I have some. I have some positive qualities. But, but remind yourself, this person actually does have some good in them, okay? They're created in the image of God, and they're not all bad. Nobody, nobody is, is, is all bad. So find their positive qualities. Try to think about them, and then express gratitude to the person. Say, hey, I appreciate the fact that you're, you know, always cheerful, or whatever the case may be. So when you share your appreciation for another person, it kind of insulates against feeling contempt for them. It's very hard to feel contempt for them if you've just told them something that you're, you're grateful for or that you, that you appreciate about them. And Dr. Andrew Huberman, who has one of the most famous podcasts in the world right now, one of the most popular podcasts in the world, the Huberman Lab podcast, he actually did a show about this about how appreciation and gratitude can affect you. Now, I haven't listened to this episode, but one, one of the things that he says is that the research shows, which is kind of counterintuitive, the research shows that the positive effects of gratitude, actually, they're more experienced by the person who receives gratitude, not the person who gives the gift of gratitude. That's kind of counterintuitive, especially for us as uh, Catholic Christians, we think about the words of St. Paul, who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I was quoting Jesus there. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's one of those quotes that's not in the gospel. But he said, you know, as our Lord said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, we don't know exactly where Jesus said that, but he said a lot of things that didn't, didn't make it into the scriptures, obviously. But, but it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we do, I think, 
I think we can still, I think that's debatable. I mean, some people probably do feel better when they, when they give a gift as opposed to receive a gift. But according to the studies, the person who receives the act of gratitude depreciation actually is impacted more, more positively. So there you have it. So let me just summarize this real quick. Contempt is a poison. It's a destructive force in relationships. It's, it's number one. It's probably the number one relationship killer. Number two, you have to recognize when it's happening, recognize when it's bubbling up. And, and sometimes that's going to feel physiologically noticeable to you. You're, you're becoming literally hot-headed. You're, you're, there's a tightness in your chest. There's a, there's a, there's a heat in your chest. There's a, there's a, you're, 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 feel, you're getting hot, hot under the collar. Maybe you're even turning red. I don't know. Learn where to feel it. And, and think about some of these behaviors that you may be doing. Maybe not even thinking about it. Are you rolling your eyes at people? Are you dismissing what they're saying out of hand? Oh, that's ridiculous. Are you gesturing as producer Jim often does when he's driving down the road? No, I'm just kidding. But um, so that, those are a couple things you can do. And then the antidote, of course, is to practice gratitude, create this culture of appreciation in your relationships, in your most important relationships, so that you can insulate against this. So my thanks to Matt Schnuck for, for writing up that thread. That's, uh, that's really, really cool stuff. I want to hear what you think about this. Have you experienced this? Have you experienced contempt? Have you seen it destroy relationships? What about the, the attitude of gratitude? Have you seen that actually repair relationships? Because again, every relationship is going to have conflict. The, and, and they need to have conflict sometimes to grow. But the key is, how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to deal with, do it constructively? And how are you going to repair after the conflict? That tells you an awful lot about how things are going to go in the future. 888-914-9149 is Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Let's go to Christopher in Monrovia, California. Hi, Christopher. Hello, Christopher. Are you there? Oh, oh. You, you, oh, if you just hung on for two more seconds, he okay. Call back, Christopher, if you can. We'll try to get you on. Let's go now to Fort Worth, Texas, to Michael. Hi, Michael. Hi, Kale. Hope you're having a blessed day. I am. How about you? Uh, it's going okay. So, uh, the other three horsemen, uh, mm. there's stonewalling, uh huh, yeah, uh, being defensive, um, mm -hmm. And I'm not 100% certain on the third one, but I think it is, like, criticism, but destructive criticism. Destructive, it's where you're okay. criticizing the person versus criticizing, like, what they do, mm, like, saying, mm -hmm. yeah. like, versus saying, you're a messy person versus saying, you've made a lot of messes. Yeah, actually, yeah. That, I, Michael, I think you're right. In fact, um, as you're saying this, this kind of jogged to my mind, uh, a visit that we had at Relevant Radio from uh, Doug Hinderer, who's a relationship expert, uh, does a lot of work with, with married couples. And, and I believe he talked to us about these. Yeah, stonewalling, where you're just putting up a wall, you don't want to talk, you're, you know, defensiveness, you know, um, overly defensive. No, I didn't do that. No, what are you talking about? No, or destructive criticism, where it, it's very, very personal. Um, yeah, that, that's that's uh, that, uh, those are the other three. They have to be. I think I think it's right, Doug. If you're listening, call in triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. Yeah, Michael, I think that that's those are great great points. And there there is a constructive way to bring up issues um, using what's called an I message is is a big thing that you can do. That's where you say you're not sending an I message on the phone, but but uh, it's when you say 
you know, when this happens or when you say X, which is, you're not, you're not imputing any ill will to the person. You're just saying, you've said this, okay? When you say X or when this happens, I feel like we're never going to be able to have a resolution or whatever the case may be. You just fill in the blanks. So that, that's, a, that's a good way to do it. Um, so Michael, really thank you for the call in Fort Worth, Texas. Really, really appreciate that. Sounds like you're in the car. And if you're in the car, uh, and if you can make a hands-free call in a safe way, why not call in right now? 888-914-9149. Have you seen this happen? Have you seen this happen in your own relationships where contempt has been just a poison? Have you experienced it? Have have you, I don't want to admit if you've done it to someone else, but uh, maybe you've repented of this. Uh, 888-914-9149, how gratitude can really, really help. I uh, would love to hear from you. 888-914-9149. It's Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Be right back after this quick break. This is The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to the program on this Thursday. We've talked about a Eucharistic meltdown, but we really need a Eucharistic revival. We also talked about the number one killer in relationships, and it's contempt. So don't be in contempt in court or in uh, the relationships that you have in life, lest you face the judge, the real judge. And uh, let's go to, not Judge Judy, but we're going to go to Judy in San Diego. 888 by the way, is the number to call. Hey, Judy, how you doing? Hello. Oh, I'm good. Thank you. So uh, when you're talking about contempt, and you, I hear that a lot, mm-hmm. but when, when you're dealing with um, a close family member who's an alcoholic, mm-hmm. or you feel they have the disease of that, and and any kind of come any kind of talking or communication just gets distorted and gets blown up into full blown, yeah. and then when you want to walk away because you know this is not going to end well, they don't let you, or it just feels like they're being dismissed and it feels and it's and it's like i may roll my eyes yeah but it's you know it's because i feel like i'm not you know what about that kind of you know so then you just ask and then not try not to be judgy you know Mm -hmm. yeah well judy that's a very tough situation i'm so sorry to to hear about that i'm going to ask our our, our listeners to to pray for the situation uh, to pray for you And, and obviously when you're dealing with somebody who is suffering with alcoholism that that's it's kind of like somebody who, who has a disease and they're not thinking usually in their rational mind. I don't think you can have a, a rational conversation with, with this person about these things. Um, and that's, that's part of why, uh, and, and obviously, you know, this person needs to get help and hopefully uh, whoever it may be is getting uh, the help that they need. And one of the reasons why the, the church has always taught that you know, drunkenness is, is a mortal sin is because we, we kind of lose that, that image of God that's in us, which is the fact that we are uh, created with a rational soul. When we're under the influence, uh, when we're inebriated, when, and it could be a, a drug too, as well, not just alcohol, but we are not thinking rationally. We can't reason. We can't, we're often operating on a level of, of it's a very animalistic level, really. It really kind of almost brings us down to the, to the level of, of animals. And so there, there's a lot, often a lot of violence involved with that, depending on, on the person. I hope that's not the case in your situation. But um, I, I, think, I think more basic things need to be done first before you can have that conversation. The person needs to get, to get healthy and, and, and get clean and sober, hopefully. And, and so, 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's those conversations are for another time. I think I think the baseline has to be dealt with first, and and just getting that person the help that they need. And and I hope that that is the case. And I'm so sorry to hear about that, Judy. And uh, th- thank you so much for calling. And God bless you. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine is the number to call on the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Let's go now to San Antonio, Texas, to Mildred. Hi, Mildred. Oh, is Mildred now? Oh, wow. This is two people uh, during the show that, that we just were about to take the call, and then they hung up. Maybe they got nervous. Maybe they got scared, but uh, don't be nervous. God God is with you. All right, okay, we got another Kale, call. That's, uh, that's how the people show contempt for you. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> right exactly. When you call them on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, at least they didn't give me a piece of their mind before they before they hung up. But uh, let's go back to uh, to the phones. Let's go to Cindy in San Francisco. Hi, Cindy. Yes, hi. Um we, uh, thank you for uh, and taking my call. So I've mm-hmm. been having a few uh, conversations with my husband, especially, you know, it, uh, conflicts and disagreements. And I was kind of saying, you know, I'm earning as equal, you know, equally as him, taking care of the children, cooking and so on. Mm. That always puts me into a position like, you know, I'm greater than him. And, you know, always saying that, you know, you could do more. And we've always had this fight. Um, but the other day, you know, I was looking, uh, you know, listening to Father um, Shahar Ripurgar, and he said something that kind of made, like, Holy Spirit spoke to me was, hmm. uh, the husband is the head of the family, and the parents are the head of the children. So if we kind of follow that hierarchy, that's God's will. And it kind of made me think it was not easy to be humble, but, you know, understand that, you know, things are supposed to be working in a certain way in God's mind, in God's will. So... I think, you know, um, that sort of, in a, you know, especially in this culture of, you know, feminism and everything, you know, you have to, you know, step, take a step, step, uh, step back and see that I'll be following God's will. So, you know, that's, that's the approach I'm taking. It's not hard, but I just wanted to say that this conversation just re- hit me really hard because I've been struggling uh, off late very much. Well, th- thanks for calling in, Cindy. Let me ask you this, Cindy. So just to, just to be clear, so... Is your husband? You feel he's showing contempt for you, or is it the the other way around? I wasn't quite clear on. Uh, I I was the one showing contempt. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting that that you mentioned this because uh, I I remember when uh, when Doug Henderer came and spoke to us uh, at this day of formation that we had on Relevant Radio, and uh, I actually interviewed him. I, I guest hosted for for Drew Mariani one day, and and he came on the program. We we talked a little bit about this that. Obviously, women and men do have different needs. <laughs> Remember that old, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. There, there is a lot of truth to that. We are built differently, and I know a lot of people want to kind of deny that. But, but he said that Doug Hinderer said that a man's number one need is respect. Is 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 respect? And and some might say, well, respect is earned. But 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 at the same time. Um, Men, men really struggle when they when they don't feel respected by by their spouses and appreciated uh, for for what they do and I'm sure women feel the same way wives feel exactly that as well and and so I think always one of the one of the great keys here is to to get God's perspective on this and, and one of the best places you can go and I'm sure you've you've read this I'm sure you've thought about this as well yourself Cindy is when you go to the letter of Ephesians uh, from St Paul chapter five that's a classic uh, text on marriage but it, you know it's funny, Paul says all this stuff about marriage, and then at the end of it he says, well, I'm actually talking about the relationship of Christ and the church, but obviously it does apply to sacramental marriage. And he says it's a great mystery, and it's the same word that we get sacrament from. It's a great sacrament. 
And in Ephesians 5, Paul really lays out how, first of all, he starts off by saying that we should submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And he talks about relationships between parents and children, that's covered, and you you kind of alluded to that a little bit, Uh, and also husbands and wives. And one of the things that uh, Paul says is that he does say, and it's not popular in the culture, that's for sure, but let me just read uh, verses 21 and following just real quick. St. Paul says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, let wives also be subject to everything in their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and that's, that's the line where it's often translated as, this is a great sacrament. And I mean it in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there you have it right at the end there. This, this concept of respect is very important uh, for the husband. And in terms of how the man should treat his wife, if he loves, if he really loves her as Christ loved the church, if if a guy is really doing that, not just thinking he's doing it, but he's actually doing that, and that's a great challenge. I can't see any possible way how a woman could have a problem with that because this is servant leadership. What did he do for his bride? He gave his life for her, and the self-sacrificial love, the servant leadership, if you will, is something that I think is hopefully naturally attractive and so uh, does this make any sense cindy are you absolutely thank you for reminding that beautiful verse i don't know that was one of the words that we read it on our wedding day so thank you so much for reminding me that (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you you got it cindy it's funny we we use that that, patricia and i use that passage as well as one of the texts um one of the readings for our wedding mass and i know that you know some people who were there who maybe were yeah, coming from maybe a more secular point of view, they're a little squirmy when when they, when they hear these words because it sounds so uh, countercultural. And 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 you mentioned you mentioned feminism earlier. I think we have to really think about a biblical feminism. What what does that really mean? And Saint John Saint John Paul II, we talked about him earlier. He always he always talked about the feminine genius and and what that really meant. Uh, he wrote a a letter on the dignity of women and. And that's something that that uh, is often overlooked. And so something to think about, um, something to pray about for sure, and just uh, living in these relationships that, that can, can honor God. Because that's really what the kingdom of God is all about. I always say it's the kingdom of right relationships. That's what, I mean, Jesus always talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, that was his main message. Well, what is it? It's the kingdom of right relationships, having a right relationship with God on the vertical plane, and having a right relationship with one another on the horizontal plane. And obviously those two form a cross, which makes for great preaching, but I think it's also true. It is also true. And so that's what we tried to talk about today, relationships. Try to keep contempt out of that out of relationships. It's just poison. And uh, try to live that, that sacrificial love and, and show appreciation for one another. It's, it goes a long, long way, a long, long way. Hey, I, pr- I appreciate you calling in, Cindy, and I appreciate...
all of our listeners of the Kale Clark Show. Hey, if you missed any of this program, don't forget, you can always catch the podcast at relevantradio.com, the Relevant Radio app. You can share it with a friend. Wherever you get your podcast, we are all over the place. And don't forget also, tomorrow, I can't wait, this is so exciting. We're going to talk about the shining face of Moses, reflecting the glory of God on the mountain. The Faith Explained, we're looking at Exodus 1230 Central. I'll see you then. I'll see you tomorrow, 23 hours from now, on the next Kale Clark Show. But stay tuned to Relevant Radio for Trending with Timory, plus the Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky. It's his birthday today. Maybe you should call in and pray for him. See you next time. Jim Shaper produced Patrick Electric, your phone calls. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.